This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. You know, I can't believe that still, even now, late March, we still have that situation in the White House. And it, it fills me with dread every morning when I look up the news on the Internet. I see the person who's in the White House, his name on so many stories. And then I see stories about, oh, you know, life as usual, life going on. And it just seems that, no, it really isn't just going on. Yes, the terrible things that have always happened continue to happen. There are some great things that happen as well. Everything happens. But somehow, because Trump is in the White House, everything feels worse. It's like, hmm, it's like having an injury, and even though it's healing, it's still hurting. So even that, even with your injury, you can still enjoy some things, but you're fully aware of your injury. And I, I know what I speak because I was injured recently. I grabbed a pan and burnt my hand. Este, but just the fact that he's still there, and even though I'm glad that the national media seems to finally be doing its job. Finally. Finally. They seem to be doing their job. Most of them. Rachel Maddow has seemed to have found her her groove again, her mojo. She's no longer the Rachel Maddow from the presidential elections or from the primary elections where she just let so many things pass. She let so many things that Bernie said pass. Este further injuring Hillary's reputation. And as someone who has interviewed people who did vote for Trump, a lot of the reason why they voted for Trump is because they couldn't stand Hillary. And a lot of it was the misinformation they had about Hillary. It wasn't based on facts. It was based on perceptions that were put forth by Bernie Sanders, by Trump, and by the media that just repeated all this without questioning it. So they're kind of redeeming themselves in a way, some of them. But there's still, you know, what's his name? Uh, the guy from CNN, Cuomo, uh, who still, you know, who declared his love for Kellyanne Conway. It's just, no, this is not the love fest. You're media. You're not supposed to be declaring your love for someone like Kellyanne Conway, of all people, who lies for a living. So that is still going on. And the normalization of life is going on. And in fact, these are very, very, Dangerous times, much more dangerous than before. And I'm really glad that Hillary Clinton is using her Twitter account more often, that former President Obama is also saying things through his spokesman. These are things we never used to see before, former presidents and former presidential candidates speaking about the current president one way or another. But that's the kind of times that we're in that we can no longer remain silent. We can no longer say, oh, just give him room to, to grow, to find his place. You know, after Trump gave his uh, address uh, before the joint uh, chambers of Congress, people were saying how he was presidential and he finally, you know, sounded like a president. It's like, no, he was reading from a script. I know that. And I'm, I'm not that smart. And I know that he was reading from a script and that the real Donald Trump was going to be the one that we've seen for more than two years now in the political realm, a insulting, offensive, a racist, sexist, intolerant. That Donald Trump did not take long to reemerge 
after that joint este, speech, eh, after that speech before the joint Congress recently. And still the national media is not really on board with the new reality. But I do want to say a shout out to Rachel Mata, who finally got on board. Andrea Mitchell, she's always been on board. Kudos to her. And the PBS NewsHour team, eh, in, including the recently passed eh, Gwen Eiffel, they had always been on it as well in terms of reporting what's real and calling things by their name. And that's what's really, really important because so many of us are still mourning, mourning what happened on election night in this country. It's just unbelievable. Well, it's believable. What's unbelievable is, wow, they really were enough voters to bring in such an odious hate monger like Trump into the White House because there have always been those kind of people in this country. My goodness, it was founded on that sort of thing. But that now there's someone like that in the White House, I just didn't think it was possible. And yes, there it is. There he is. Very possible. Um, we're going to be talking about other things today besides my weekly I cannot believe Trump is in the White House rant. There's the 12th annual... Jewish Film Festival that's taking place starting today. Um, it is, let me just move over to my, uh, there's a website for it. If you just Google Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival, you'll get all the information. Um, it's playing March 18th through April 4th, up and down the valley. Um, Hamden, Hampshire um, counties, and there are lots of films. I think there are about two dozen films that are that are playing in places such as the Amherst Cinema, uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. So pretty much anywhere you live, you'll be within a short driving uh, distance to watch a film from the, the 12th annual Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival. So we'll be talking with Larry Hart and the organizers of the film festival in a moment. And then we'll come back and continue that conversation and then we'll also hear from Estela Lopez, who is Puerto Rican, and she's Cuban. She's Cuban born and raised, but then after Fidel Castro uh, took over Cuba, her family, and when she was about 14, moved uh, to New York and then moved to Puerto Rico. So her identity is many identities, or is a few identities, not many identities. And we'll talk about that, and that will be in Espanol. But right now, let's start with... Um, the conversation we had regarding the film festival, which begins on March 18 today and runs through April 4, and it will be screening in 16 venues across Hamden, Hampshire, and Franklin counties. So here we go. Hi, Larry. How are you? Good morning, morning, Natalia. I'm very well. So we're at the 12th annual Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival. It's coming up this weekend. It begins on March 18th, and we have special guests with us this morning. We have the co-directors of the festival, the 12th Annual Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival, Carlin Treach and Deb Cravoy. Welcome. Uh, good morning. And good morning. they're going to tell us about the festival. And I guess I'm going to start off with a, question, with a good question. Why bother having a Jewish film festival as opposed to just any old film festival? Deb? Well, um, the Jewish Film Festival, which has been around for 12 years now, is really meant to be uh, a celebration of some of the best independent film uh, through a Jewish lens from around the world. And really, these are films that wouldn't otherwise find a screen in Western Mass. 
So uh, it's really a chance to bring some of the most critically acclaimed award-winning films uh, to the area and also to bring the community together. And, and we mean that in the broadest sense, uh, the Jewish community, the broader community. The films are on so many different topics that, that really touch on a lot of universal values and themes. You know, one of the things I get out of the film festival is a different perspective on what's going on in the Middle East. Not all the films are about Israel and the Middle East, but some of them are, and there are films that I would never see otherwise. And one of them is going to be showing tonight, on March 18th, at the Basketball Hall of Fame. And it's a film about what, Carlin? <laughs> so it's a film about the 1977 Maccabi uh, basketball team that is just a great feel-good story. So it's a basketball film at the Basketball Hall of Fame. Basketball it's a total coincidence. Total coincidence. <laughs> who who would have thunk? Um, it's a great feel-good story. It's a um, one of the you know miracle stories, miracle teams. Um, it it it's a very interesting story about an interesting time, 1977, when the when Israel was just. Um, coming off the Yom Kippur War, the 1972 um, war in Israel, and 73, but 73, sorry, but who's counting? And um, <laughs> they 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 put together this team of many American NBA um, stars and um, people, uh, basketball players from all over the world, um, and and never imagined that they were going to go even as far as the European. Um, semifinals, and when they got to the semifinals and played the Soviet team and won, they, they Tal Brody, who is going to be in attendance at the um, Basketball Hall of Fame tonight. Is it tall or tall? Uh, <laughs> it is tall. <laughs> I guess it's, t but it's both. He, he is tall, tall, is tall, but it is <laughs> Tal Brody. His, real, um, his, his full name is Talbot. Ah, but so Tal sounds I think, very Israeli. I think in Trenton, New Jersey, he was known as Tal. <laughs> I can see why. Um, and he is going to be at the event um, tonight and uh, and be available for questions and answers and talk about the um, how it really felt to be part of this incredible team. And he is actually the person who named the film. Um, at the end of this incredible win um, in the semifinals, he basically said... Um, we're we're on the map now. Um, Israel is on the map, and it's hard to think of Israel not being on the on the map. But it's it was very different in the '60s and '70s, and its its existence was precarious and Absolutely. still precarious to this day, and for all the reasons that we know about in in the news. Uh, we have a clip of the film. It'll give you a sense of why this is more than a sports film. Basketball was the number one topic in Israel. When I got there, I was really surprised because inside me, I realized that. We had a chance to do something. Maccabi Tel Aviv playing for the European Cup Championship? Are you kidding me? Who are these guys? It wasn't that long after the war. The country was starving for something that lifted the country. Okay, we're talking with Carlin Treach and Deb Cravoy, who are the co-directors of the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival. It's in its 12th year, and we've been talking about On the Map. You just heard a clip from it. It's a film about the Israeli basketball team in the, in the Maccabee Games, I think, and they beat the Soviet Union. Uh, that thing is the subject of many sports films, so it's more than just a film about sports. It's really a film about the Cold War, a film about the existence of Israel. But what is special about doing, showing this at the festival why is this better to see it 
at the Basketball Hall of Fame tonight, March 18th, at what time? Um, there's a reception at 7.30, and the film will be showing at 8.15. Yeah, so why would why bother going to see the film at the film festival rather than just getting a hold of it through the internet or on DVD? Uh, this one I'm not sure is available on DVD yet. Well, that's one reason. But, um, <laughs> but the communal experience of, of seeing um, a film like this um, together with an audience, and also having a special guest. Um, Tall Brody is not going to be in your living room, um, even if you could get. He wouldn't this fit one. in my living room. Yeah, he wouldn't <laughs> fit in my living room either. Um, but um, to to have special guests, and we have um, throughout the festival, we have twelve um, speakers, twelve events that have panels, special guests, filmmakers um, from all over the country that are coming, and and um, in this case from Israel that are coming to add uh, another dimension that people don't get in their own homes. I'd like to add here that you're going to have uh, screenings in 16 different theaters in nine cities and three counties. And those three counties are Hamden, Hampshire, and Franklin. Franklin. And Franklin. And where can people get more information? We have a, a great website, um, a little hard to understand on the radio, pvjff.org, Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival.org. But you know, if you just search for uh, Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival or Valley Jewish Film Festival, it'll, it'll come up on, yeah, on, on your right. search. That's right. Are these all in English language? Uh, they are not all in English, but some of them are subtitled, um, but they, they, are, they are all easily accessible. And how did you, how, what was the process for curating this, this festival? Uh, Carlin and I work with a volunteer committee, people with film backgrounds, Jewish communal, Jewish culture backgrounds, um, really expertise across the spectrum. And we review many, many films uh, to really plan a program that gives us as diverse a a lineup as possible. Uh, Films that include comedies, feature dramas, uh, a lot of documentaries on the lineup this year, a short film showcase this year. So um, the idea is really as diverse a lineup as possible. Now, you know, I'm on the advisory board, uh, full disclosure, um, but I've also been on the panel of people who select films, not this year, but in other years, and I know how hard it is. You can imagine the number of hours you have to go through to pick these films. And I also know that there are 70 Jewish film festivals in the United States alone, and this is not cookie cutter. It's not just taking the films from another festival. Uh, this is these are films that are selected for the Pioneer Valley, and are shown now. What it, it's a three week festival? Is that right? Nearly, yep, nearly. Yeah, and that's the longest it's been, and it's all up and down the up and down the valley. And you have it if you miss the film in one location, you have a chance of seeing it seeing it somewhere right. else. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and continue talking about the Jewish Film Festival being held March 18 through April 4 in Western Massachusetts. This is Via Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come to a clip later on in a few minutes. Uh, I want to I want to save that, but I want to I want to ask Carlin and uh, Deb, what are some of their favorite films in the festival? What are you looking forward to, particularly in the early part of the festival? Well, we will be showing a film that will show the clip of Norman Lear, just another version of you. Um, about the most incredible f- 
filmmaker. Um, he's actually the, a TV um, mogul, I, mogul guru <laughs> um, that put together the most incredible um, lineup of new in. Just um, at one point, the he situational had, comedies. Yeah. We have Maud, and we have All in the Family, the good Jeffersons, times, good the Jeffersons. Just groundbreaking um, social commentary um, kinds of things, and and that's something that I think is a Jewish value. Um, we have put together a variety of different programs that talk about um, social justice, um, and Norman Lear was one of those people who um, who. Um, spent his life working in, towards social justice and social commentary. Yeah, he was a little bit subversive in that way, that he was able to say, oh, I have a situation comedy for you. And it's about a family, and the, the husband is you know super racist, and the mother, she's really sweet, yeah. and the son <laughs> is a social activist, and the That's daughter. You know, and through that, or the, those are the bunkers, through that television show, the United States was exposed for the first time straight on. That's right. Uh, this is what right. racism looks like, sounds like. This is what it what what it's like. One of the things that you see in that documentary about Norman Lear is a clip from the original British show that inspired him, and I had never seen that clip before. And it is enlightening to see that kind of conversation in Britain at that time. And then he talks about how he changed it. And he didn't just take it and say, "Okay, we're going to have the same characters and the same names and the same dialogue." And he made it very American. Uh, and that is an, it tells you something about the difference between the United States and Britain, but also tells you something about how television is made. Uh, it's it's always some kind of imitation. He he did something new, but he was taking from somebody else. The only issue that I have with one of his shows, Good Times, is that that program the and that took place in the South Side of Chicago. It's a black family. The mother is Florence, who was the housekeeper for Maud, another. That's a spinoff, right? Yeah. Right. Is that why was a Florence's house? It had stains on the wall, where on, on the light switch, on the door, and it seemed to me that what was being said, in some way, was well, if you're if you're that poor and you live in public housing, you're not going to take care of your walls. You're not going to clean your walls. Well, one of the things that this documentary does is it addresses that directly, and the criticism he got for that. And why are you showing them in this light? And then he reacts in some of his other sitcoms and, and says, okay, we're going to do it differently. Uh, so he was able to take criticism. I think one of the great things about this film is you realize that Norman, Norman Lear ends his television career rather early because he is so upset about the attack on civil liberties in this country. And when you see him at the time that he changes, which is about 30 years ago, and he, and he founds the People for the American Way, he is already an older man. <laughs> And he's still alive. He's 95 years old now, and he's still going to work every day. We're speaking with Larry Hart and Karen Trish. and Carlin De Trish. Carlin Trish, I'm sorry. And Deb Cravoy about the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival, which is taking place now. Starts tonight. And they will be back. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be back and continue this conversation. This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9. WHMP. We're back. Uh, we're speaking about the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival, which is taking place now. How many films are in this festival, uh, Deb? 
Uh, we're screening 22 films and 16 different venues across the valley, uh, across all three counties. And Google Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival and you'll find the website and you'll get more details. We were talking about Norman Lear. And the Norman Lear documentary uh, is for American Masters. If you know the series American Masters, uh, they look at people who are basically artists, it's biographies generally, and this fits right into their remit. And Norman Lear is a fascinating look at one man's life, and it goes deep into his childhood, so deep into his childhood that they have an actor playing him as a child who keeps meeting Norman Lear along the way. As a device, it's kind of an interesting approach. Uh, We have a clip from the film, and I think it'll give you a better sense of what it's like. He has been around approximately forever. He is 92 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, Norman Lear. You know what I like about you, Archie? What's that, boy? Nothing. (laughs) Norman Lear has changed the face of television. And at least 120 million Americans watch Norman Lear shows every week. Oh, no, sir, Master Jefferson. You done showed me the way. Stop it. Stop it. Say, please. Television can be broken into two parts, before Norman and after Norman. While watching this film with some people recently, uh, everybody reacts to those old clips of the Jeffersons and All in the Family. I mean, you can't help but laugh at it, and it's really nostalgic to see it. And it's wonderful also to see Norman Lear comment on it. And this is something that you don't get uh, from you know the normal you know, network type of documentary. And the idea that we'll be able to have a discussion about the film afterwards from people of all generations, you know, it's not just people from my 1950s, 1960s generation that remember this, but because it's been in reruns for so long, this film is relevant, and it's more than relevant now because of the references to people for the American way and the threats to our civil liberties. I want to ask, um, I saw a documentary called When Jews Were Funny on Netflix recently, and... Jews are funny right here in this room right now. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I want to let's talk a little bit about that. The role of humor to talk about tragedy. Well, there are. There's a film coming up uh, in the festival on the 22nd called How does it pronounce? Moshe. Moshe. Yeah, maybe you can describe describe that film and, and how it relates to that the question of Jews being funny. I mean, I I guess I think that, um, so let me just set that up and then we can come back to your question, Natalia. So we have a film coming up at the Greenfield Garden Cinema next week uh, on March 22nd called Moshe. And it's a Dutch romantic comedy is probably how I would characterize it. And it takes place in the little pocket of the Amsterdam Jewish community. And it's about a young woman who really gets the jolt that she needs to reexamine her life and uh, figure out what she wants to do. And she's torn between taking care of her father, who's uh, just lost his wife. Um, she has this dream to go to theater school. It's a, it's a film about finding your dreams. It's a film about family. It's a film about friends. And um, the way that it's set up is, uh, well, she runs into a few obstacles along the way. And at each subsequent obstacle, there's kind of these humorous uh, uh, not pratfalls, but but a series of events that she runs into. And so it's what we would call a dramatic comedy in some ways because there's a very poignant story about someone trying to discover themselves and examine their own life. But yet the humor helps make the poignant moments just that much more relatable, I think, to all of us. This, the aspect of, of Jews and comedy has a lot to do with the oppression uh, the feeling that you are the other, 
and making fun of that situation as a way to survive. And you see this in a lot of the films. And when Israel comes into existence and is a homeland for the Jews, it sort of starts to change that feeling of if you have if you're a homeless people and you're not really comfortable anywhere, and then there's one place where you are, it really starts to change the way you feel about yourself as a culture. Um, that's why I find uh, seeing films from Israel so fascinating in the festival. Uh, there's one uh, that I really loved called AKA Nadia. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, Carlin. Sure. That that film is um, will be shown the following Sunday at uh, Amherst Cinema. And it's um, also in a sort of a finding yourself or losing yourself um, identity film. Um, a Palestinian woman um, falls in love and, and leaves um, Israel, leaves the, um, and, and then gets jilted basically um, and reinvents herself as an Israeli and creates a whole new life for herself, a husband, a family. Um, and then sort of gets outed again and um, and the consequences of that. This um, question of passing, of passing, she's passing, uh, she's a Palestinian woman, she's passing as a Jew in Israel. In the United States, we have this issue of, of passing as a, as a Gentile, passing right. as a wasp. And you see we have a long history of these kind of, of films that get at this, uh, like A Gentleman's Agreement, uh, where the idea, you know, are you recognized as a Jew, does your name reveal you as a Jew, and people changing their names, and this whole issue of people coming to the United States uh, and changing their names so that they can pass. Well, that wasn't that part of the Inquisition. Also. Well, absolutely, and, and right. the conversos, right. As far back as the Inquisition, you find it in the Holocaust, you find it um, in, in modern times, you know, it, it, people change their names um, even today, to, to assimilate more, and, and so people don't recognize a Jewish name. Right. And I, so I, I think for the Jewish Film Festival, and I think for other film festivals that deal with issues of identity, this idea of borrowing an identity runs through many of the films, certainly right. some of the ones that we've shown in recent years. There's a, another film uh, in the festival that I really loved called The Woman's uh, Balcony, and this is also a comedy from, from Israel, and it deals with uh, a synagogue, an orthodox synagogue, but not ultra-orthodox, where the women's balcony, women and men are separated in, in most orthodox synagogues, and the women are in a balcony, but it's open, and they can see the, the men, and the balcony collapses. Some people are hurt, and it causes a financial crisis in the synagogue. And it becomes a Lysistrata story, because the women say they're going to withhold the connubial favor, favors from their husbands. They're not even going to live with them until there's some kind of equity in the synagogue. And when I watched this, I thought, could this be understood by anybody? Do you have to know anything about Jewish synagogue culture or Israel? And I think you don't. I think you just understand what fundamentalism is and, and the separation of men and women and women's rights are. And to see this in Israeli society, uh, it's done with a sense of humor. And uh, it's sort of self-deprecating in a way. And also, one thing I read about this film that's great is that most of the cast are middle-aged women and older. It's an opportunity for some actresses to really shine. In the two minutes that we have left, um, are there other films that, that speak to these times? Well, I think here in Northampton at Smith College, we're going to be screening a documentary, a documentary that's certainly very relevant 
Uh, it's called The Freedom to Marry. And it's a, an insider's look at the whole marriage equality movement, really tracing the work that Evan Wolfson, uh, who in, uh, founded the organization Freedom to Marry and really is considered by many in the LGBTQ movement as the architect of the same-sex marriage campaign. It traces his work. It also profiles Mary Bonato, who's the uh, well-regarded civil rights attorney from GLAAD, in Boston, who, and the two of them really prepared this case for the Supreme Court. Uh, Wolfson talks about his humble uh, Jewish upbringing in Pittsburgh that really uh, informed his own sense of social justice and, and, and uh, a commitment to doing right. And it's just a fantastic film. We're going to be having Stan Rosenberg, the Senate president, joining us for a discussion afterwards, as long as some others. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> um, and that's a, that's a whole other topic. I'd like to thank Larry Hart and Deb Cravoy and Carlin Trish. And thank you for putting together the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival year after year. I have an appreciation how hard it is uh, to even do this, even just selecting the films, never mind coordinating where they all are going to be shown. This is really important for all of us here in Western Mass to have this rich Can banquet Can say of films. very quickly that uh, tickets are available online this year for the first time. Oh, um, pvjff.org. Okay, so tickets are available online. Larry, thank you. Thank you for having us, Natalia, and we'll see you next week. Mi casa es tu casa. Claro. Thank you. Thanks, Natalia. This is Vaya con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Gracias, gracias. Gracias por regresar. Y ahora vamos a hablar con Estela López sobre qué es lo que significa la, la identidad de uno. ¿Quién es uno? Cuando uno ha nacido en X lugar y se ha criado en Y lugar o ha ido a X lugar, este, si en la casa hablan eh, X idioma y afuera de la casa hablan otro idioma todas estas cosas que tienen que ver con identidad son, co son complejas y aquí vivimos muchos en una diáspora de distintas culturas eh, bueno como canta Mercedes Sosa solo le pido a Dios que en el futuro no me sea indiferente desahuciado está el que tiene que marchar a vivir una cultura diferente con ustedes, la educadora, la gran dama de Hartford, Connecticut, amable, generosa, Estela López. Yo quiero llevar a mi hija y a mi nieta a Cuba. Eh, mi hija es puertorriqueña y obviamente conoce bien la isla. Y mi nieta también, parte de lo que yo hice desde que nació, a los seis meses la llevé, la presenté en sociedad en Puerto Rico. Pero... Quiero que conozca la parte mía, la herencia mía, que vayan a Cuba y vean la isla, vean eh, Sin Fuego, que es donde nacieron mis padres, entiendan por qué eh, les gusta tanto el mar, no solamente por Puerto Rico, sino por Cuba. Y quizás entiendan también la complejidad de, de lo que yo soy y eh, lo que han heredado de mí, de haber vivido en, en dos islas maravillosas 
y tener todo ese trasfondo en, como parte de, de mis vivencias. ¿Cuántos años tú tenías cuando se fueron, eh, cuando se tuvieron que ir de Cuba? Yo tenía 14 años, iba a cumplir 14 años, así que me recuerdo bien. Y también como tengo un hermano mayor, me ayudó también a recordar, porque él fue parte de, de mi memoria, siempre ha sido parte de mi memoria de, de acordarme las cosas que quizás a mí se me olvidaron. ¿A dónde fueron cuando se fueron de Cuba? Fuimos a Miami por seis meses, entonces papá consiguió trabajo en Nueva York y no nos fuimos a Nueva York hasta el verano porque no teníamos ropa de invierno. Entonces en verano nos mudamos a Nueva York y en, en Nueva York me quedé 14 años. Y esa es mi parte formativa en realidad en Nueva York. Eh, fue en los 60, una época de mucho cambio, de mucha liberación. Y entonces en el 74 fui a vivir a Puerto Rico. ¿Y hasta cuándo eh, estuviste en Puerto Rico? Estuve en Puerto Rico hasta 1997. Y eh, me casé con un puertorriqueño y mi hija nació allá. Así que Puerto Rico también es otra parte importante de lo que yo soy, de mi formación, de, de mi parte emocional, de lo que me gusta, de lo cañoro. Y tanto el mar como la isla, la comida y las personalidades de, de la gente de Puerto Rico. ¿Verdad que el mar es, es, una, es, es una fuerza que restaura? Totalmente. Siempre, después de irme de Puerto Rico, siempre he vivido donde hay agua. En Chicago, frente al lago, me preguntaron dónde quieres vivir. Y entonces cuando vi el lago, digo, ah, esto es fácil. Y en aquí en Hartford, frente al río. Que aunque el río es muy distinto al, al mar, pero es agua también. Sí, a mí me pasó eso también. Yo miro, yo miro el río con Ericot y sí, agradezco que es agua, pero la verdad es que no tiene nada que ver no. con, con el Caribe, con el Atlántico tropical. Este, entonces, si alguien te pregunta eh, sobre ti, o sea, ¿cómo, ¿cómo tú le contestas? Si te preguntas, ¿de dónde tú eres? Eh, ¿O qué tú eres? Esa es una de las preguntas más difíciles de contestar, porque nunca puedo decir que soy de un solo sitio. Eh, si no quiero dar la historia larga, digo que soy puertorriqueña. En parte porque aquí se conoce más a, la, a los puertorriqueños, además puertorriqueños. Y también porque quiero que se aprecie a Puerto Rico. Pero si tengo tiempo eh, y ganas, digo, mira, nací en Cuba... Eh, viví muchos años en Puerto Rico y ahora estoy acá. Y entonces esa es mi historia. Eh, lo difícil para mí es negar una de esas partes, esos componentes. Es decir, yo soy la acumulación de esas experiencias que he vivido. Y me emociono tanto con, cuando oigo la borinqueña como cuando oigo el, el himno cubano. Y me emociono tanto con los frijoles negros como con las habichuelas rosas. Y me gustan tanto los pasteles como cualquier otro plato cubano y, y, y el meatloaf americano. Así que es esa combinación que yo creo que me hace más interesante y, y de cierta manera me, la complejidad me hace entender complejidades de otra gente y de, otro, de otros asuntos. ¿Tú lo sientes también como vivir con, un, con que algo te falta? Totalmente. Siempre es la añoranza de, de, de... No es necesariamente el calor, es eh, el calor, pero el calor humano que hay en la, en, en la isla, en Puerto Rico. Esa, eh, uno se monta en una guagua en Puerto Rico y se hace eh, amigo de todo el mundo cuando termina la, el viaje. Eh, esa experiencia 
eh, comunal de la gente que lo recibe a uno y la generosidad. Eso me falta, me falta aquí donde pues la gente es más privada eh, y la amistad se ve de otra manera diferente. Eh, y de Cuba también, eh, quizás lo que más añoro de Cuba es no haber podido seguir viviendo allá y haber solidarizado quizás lo que es ser cubano, porque me, me, me fui a una edad muy, muy temprana. Pero sí, eh, un, yo no estoy completa sin uno de esos pedazos eh, eh, al lado de mí. Y la comida es uno de esos ejemplos. El otro día tuve que, que ir a comer un mofongo porque hacía tiempo que no comía mofongo. Entonces, como un mofongo es tan sencillo y, y un flan y ya uno se siente... Qué bien, tengo el alma curada por el día de hoy. Qué nieve y no importa la nieve. Parte de, de, de lo que he descubierto hablando con mi hija es que las experiencias de irse uno del país a la edad que nos fuimos no las hablamos, no las discutimos. Nos hemos quedado en silencio guardando todo eso como si fuera algo oscuro cuando no lo es. Y entonces eso de cierta manera nos ha marcado y tenemos que aprender a hablarlo, a compartirlo, porque eso ayuda a otros también a, a tener la empatía y a poderse enfrentarse con cosas que, que, que la vida nos manda a, a nosotros. Pero no lo hablamos, no lo, no lo discutimos, ¿no? a pesar de que fue difícil y terrible. Yo no sé si es que... Se, se mira como un secreto que no se debe divulgar. Yo no estoy segura cuál es la, la, la razón, pero no lo discutimos. ¿Tú piensas en Cuba a menudo? ¿O cuando piensas en Cuba, qué piensas? Yo pienso en, en, mi, en mi niñez. Yo tuve una niñez muy buena, viví en el campo y pienso en, en mi niñez. Yo pienso más en Puerto Rico porque ya era adulta, me casé, mi hija nació y profesionalmente me fue muy bien y pienso más en Puerto Rico en Cuba pienso en mi niñez tuve una niñez muy buena con unos abuelos extraordinarios y unas experiencias de nuevo de vivir en el campo de, y de cierta manera primitivo ¿no? con, con cocina de carbón y la luz la apagaban a las 10, 9 de la noche y con mosquiteros porque había muchos mosquitos con con cosas primitivas que hoy en día uno diría, Dios mío, ¿cómo se podía vivir así? Pero, pues, era parte y nadie cuestionaba esas cosas. Así que, en Puerto Rico, en ese sentido, es más importante para mí que Cuba. Entonces, tú dices que, no lo que dijo tu hija, que ustedes no hablan de, 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 de haberse ido de Cuba. No hablan ni entre ustedes tampoco. Yo hablo con mi hermano mi hermano hablamos y entonces eh, parte de lo que mi hermano me, me ayudó a entender que la decisión realmente fue de mamá mamá fue la que le dijo a mi padre que había que irse papá tenía la ilusión de que se podía quedar y que podía permanecer bajo el régimen castrista mamá no tenía esa convicción entonces lo convenció es decir que de cierta manera mamá fue la más valiente que lo, lo, lo llevó a irse y entonces también, ¿cómo ayudamos a la familia? Yo recuerdo en, en Nueva York tenemos un apartamento y una cama en la sala y siempre había alguien de la familia durmiendo en la sala porque venían de paso, había que ayudarlos eh, para que pudiera establecerse y demás. Y quizás la, lo que más me impactó a mí, yo fui una, a un high school que, que odio 
y odié la experiencia de ir a ese high school, pero en ese high school yo descubrí que todo yo lo había perdido, no había perdido, no es que tuviéramos propiedades porque nosotros no teníamos, vivíamos en un sitio alquilado y demás, pero sí perdimos a la familia, perdimos los retratos, perdimos tantas cosas que las, las muñecas, los juguetes, la, 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 las cosas con las que uno crece. Pero lo que uno no perdía era lo que uno aprendía, la educación. Y de ahí viene mi gran convicción y mi gran pasión por educarme y por educar, entendiendo que eso no se pierde, que eso nadie se lo quita a uno. Gracias Estela por eso. And thank you to Larry and to the organizers of the Pioneer Valley Jewish Film Festival that's taking place in the next couple of weeks. And in honor of those of us who live in this, this diaspora, no matter where we're from, Puerto Rico or Cuba, we're going to have Cuba's soul singer, La Lupe, singing the unofficial, one of the unofficial anthems of Puerto Rico called Lamento Borincano. <laughs>
This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP.